Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. France has become a major battleground in the fight between European governments whose populations are mostly Christian and Islamist terrorists who are out to impose their ideology by all means possible. The recent brutal attacks in France and Austria have reignited dialogue among European leaders to combat what they term political Islam. Is it just a security problem or a more fundamental one? Will the measures taken by the French and other authorities decrease the friction or only increase it? To analyze this topic, we are joined from central Israel by Dr. Eli Carmon, who is a senior researcher at the Institute for Counterterrorism at IDC Herzliya. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Also joining us from the United Kingdom is Colonel Richard Kemp, who is a former British infantry commander and head of International Terrorism Intelligence Team at the British Cabinet Office. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure and good evening to you and to your viewers. Indeed. And uh, with us here at the studio is our TV7 analyst, Mr. Amir Oren. Uh, Mr. Oren, give us a broader understanding on this uh, ongoing topic, as it's not uh, something new that uh, Europe is contending with. It's not new, but nevertheless, uh, it is a fundamental problem and not uh, just uh, something which a technical measure, um, some uh, obstacle or sniffer or what have you uh, could solve. And that is because uh, the very concept of a nation state with separation of church and state is anathema to uh, political Islam, and of course, uh, with the Islamists, they would like Islam to be uh, the law of the land. And uh, because we are now focusing mainly on France, it is worth noting that uh, France, uh, under the uh, concept uh, launched by Napoleon uh, more than 200 years ago, tried to deviate from the former concept of the uh, Holy Roman Empire, where uh, there was no separation between church and state. And uh, the French, even though most of them are Christian, most of them are Catholic, nevertheless, um, they point to secularism um, as one of the tenets of uh, the system. Now come um, Muslim minorities, some of them uh, descendants of uh, immigrants from North Africa, others uh, coming from other places. And they uh, not only want uh, to have their own um, basic identity, but uh, they would like to impose their values on society. Um, And if there is freedom of expression in France, including, yes, cartoons which might hurt the feelings of those who do not like to see their prophet depicted there. And they uh, take uh, arms, swords, or knives in this case. Um, In one case, a Chechen immigrant, someone who came from Chechnya, had nothing to do with Morocco, Tunisia, or Algeria, um, former French districts or colonies. And uh, the leaders of Chechnya threatened to go and fight Uh, France in general and President Macron in particular, then it's quite a crisis and uh, it behooves other European countries to side with France and fight this danger. 
Colonel Kemp, I'd like to refer the next question to you. Political Islam is not an issue that uh, Europe has been contending with for uh, the, the uh, last uh, brief history, but it's it's something that has been uh, an issue also on a global scale. Uh, if we're looking at the most influential uh, uh, political Islamist organization, the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, uh, it was uh, rooted predominantly in the Middle East, including in Egypt. Uh, once it was uh, labeled as a terrorist organization, it fled to the United Kingdom, and uh, ultimately, during uh, the, the tenure of uh, uh, British Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, who sought to instigate an investigation, they uh, reportedly evaded that investigation by moving their headquarters to Austria. Is there enough of cooperation between European intelligence organizations, between European authorities uh, within various member states? At the time, uh, Britain was, of course, party to the European Union, today no more. But uh, is there still cooperation on the security level in order to make sure that uh, those kind of organizations do not mishandle European values and uh, legal constructs, if you will, uh, in order to advance their uh, ideological motives uh, sometimes, and uh, in many cases also not so kosher. Yeah, I mean, our, our problem, our immediate, direct, recent problem with Islamic terrorism goes back to around 2005 when we, had, we suffered the first series of suicide attacks in London back in 2005. Before that, we had received a wake-up call uh, if you want to call it that, by 9-11, when more British people were killed in that attack in New York than had ever been killed before or since in any terrorist attack. So that alerted us to a very new situation in many ways. Before that, before 9-11, I believe that there was an undeclared British um, policy of effectively allowing groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and actually even more immediate groups who are involved in directly in terrorism allowed them to use the UK as a kind of safe haven for fundraising and supporting activities overseas as long as they didn't do it in the UK. I, I think that's a, you know, quite a well understood but not obviously spoken policy. That all changed uh, on 9-11. Um, and since 9-11, since we've had many attempted attacks in the UK, some successful attacks in the UK, such as a few years ago, we had a, a devastating suicide attack in Manchester. Indeed. All of these developments have led to greater cooperation between the intelligence and security services across Europe and indeed across the world. And that includes Israel. Britain has an extremely close relationship with your intelligence services. And I personally was involved in that at one point when I was working in government. Um, but that and, and also, of course, perhaps most importantly of all for us was as a relationship with American intelligence services. Um, so all of that develops and continues. And I think, yeah, we've now left the European Union where we had obviously close intelligence cooperation. Uh, I don't believe that that departure from the European Union will reduce the level of intelligence cooperation specifically on terrorism, but also on other serious crime as well uh, between us and the EU countries. I do, I do believe that given the scale of the problem that we face in Europe and just in Britain alone, there are 43,000 people on our MI5 
terrorist watch list today, 43,000, a comparable number in other countries. Given the scale of that, I do believe that every intelligence service in Europe needs to be given much greater resources than they now have. And, and there has always been, there's long been a weakness in, among many of the intelligence services encountering terrorism in different countries in Europe. I think Britain, I, I'm not saying this as a, a kind of jingoistic Brit, but I, or arrogant perhaps, but I do, I do believe Britain has had the most effective and continues to have the most effective intelligence service in Europe. Uh, and and it's what well, part of its strong effectiveness is its ability to liaise and cooperate with people like Israeli intelligence, American intelligence, and other services in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world, which has hugely enforced or, or strengthened our uh, own intelligence services in dealing with this. Indeed, uh, Dr. Kalman, uh, as uh, Colonel Kemp just stated, there there is still a lot of cooperation between the various intelligence agencies to try and monitor uh, those people who are uh, potentially able to carry out terrorist attacks. Uh, of course, uh, uh, right before the attack in Austria and Vienna uh, last week, we, we saw uh, there was uh, uh, two reports, one that the uh, FBI informed uh, the Austrian uh, intelligence about uh, uh, the severity or the, the, the threat of uh, this specific uh, individual surrounding that individual, and another one by the Slovakian intelligence agency that uh, warned uh, the Austrian intelligence agency about uh, that same uh, Islamist uh, terrorist uh, trying to acquire weapons in order to carry out that same very attack, but for some reason Either it didn't go down uh, the pipeline or the chain of command in order to uh, reach that point of, of uh, apprehending uh, the, the, what could have been a suspect rather than uh, a terrorist. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, it seems that he was roaming free, even though he already was in uh, various uh, uh, government uh, uh, incarcerated at one point uh, in uh, trying to... Uh, de-radicalize him, uh, if uh, uh, I can use that term at all, uh, but uh, obviously it failed. Where do European capitals actually stand together in order to ascertain that cooperation is actually followed through and, and those kind of attacks don't happen again? I think the cooperation uh, exists and the uh, uh, law enforcement and the intelligence services are working uh, quite well. But uh, I must uh, uh, comment uh, on the wave, or short wave of attacks in France and the one in Austria, that this is not exactly what happened in 2015 and 2016 in uh, France and Belgium. These are not uh, uh, important uh, cells of organized people which trained in Syria or in Iraq, and some of them were sent uh, uh, back to the continent and staged uh, a huge, uh, major uh, attacks uh, in these uh, two countries. Uh, these are uh, individuals. Uh, which have some kind of uh, level of radicalization. Uh, uh, some of them were not at all uh, known uh, by the authorities. In the case of uh, uh, Austria, he indeed uh, passed a kind of uh, a radicalization process, official one, uh, and he was liberated from prison uh, quite uh, uh, quickly after being for, uh, arrested for criminal offenses. And this is one of the problems, by the way, of the uh, prison system or the trial system in Europe that many uh, terrorists or potential terrorists uh, are several years in prison. Many of them, like it happened for several of them in Britain uh, itself some uh, year or two years ago, 
they are liberated uh, on parole. They uh, pass some kind of uh, course of delegalization process, which is not so so serious, I think. And therefore, they go uh, back to the streets and they can stage this kind of of, uh, of uh, uh, attacks. Uh, clearly, there is a problem, uh, and I think there are several levels of. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, law enforcement uh, dealing, challenging this, uh, this problem. Uh, first of all, I must say that uh, the wave of foreign fighters have stopped. Uh, and uh, after several years of uh, negligence, I would say, uh, the uh, uh, political uh, uh, decision makers understood that they had to do something not to permit the return of foreign fighters, to expel some of those which have double nationality, uh, to keep them in prison if necessary, and also they uh, understood there is a problem with women, for instance, which was not uh, so obvious uh, several years ago. But again, when you have one uh, one individual, it's quite difficult uh, to. Uh, and although I don't consider them lone wolves, we'll see that every one of these uh, people involved in France and the one in, in Austria is the, uh, they has some kind of backing from the family, a kind of network. Uh, which is a previous uh, active network. By, by the way, Al-Qaeda was much more active in Europe than uh, ISIS. Um, and Al-Qaeda sent most of the foreign fighters to uh, Iraq and, and Syria in the past. And now they return and there is a kind of uh, uh, battle for um, uh, heart and minds by ISIS and Al-Qaeda inside Europe. So uh, the problem is uh, Austria, I think, because they didn't have in the past uh, any such, uh, uh, such big... Uh, uh, terrorist attack, they were perhaps not prepared, uh, but we saw that uh, at the beginning they didn't understand there is only one person involved, they thought that there is a cell of three, four people, uh, which means that they were not prepared operational perhaps to deal uh, with the incident. Indeed. Mr. Owen? Uh, several quick points. One, regarding the prison system which uh, Dr. Kamon mentioned. Uh, yes, uh, damn if I do and damn if I don't. If uh, they get out of prison uh, quickly, they go back on the street and uh, perform their terror acts. But if they stay too long, they get indoctrinated by uh, other diehard, more radicalized um, Muslims who may have been sentenced to longer prison terms. So there's a problem there. Another one uh, is that law enforcement and intelligence find it harder to penetrate those small groups, even if they are not cells um, in the traditional uh, sense, they suspect all outsiders. Uh, you must have a very, very clever agent uh, prepared for a long time, able uh, to come off as a genuine radical Muslim in order to penetrate or draw, uh, perhaps even serve as a human magnet uh, to others. Um, it is not uh, so easy uh, to prepare uh, such an asset. Another problem, uh, the mosques uh, and religious leaders uh, who are usually either indifferent or even hostile to the authorities. Uh, right now in France, there were uh, several voices for moderation, but this is uh, not the norm. And one last point, uh, many of these terror acts are what we in Israel call acts of inspiration. They didn't get any command from some superior. 
they uh, watched... Not all of them. Not Some all did. of them. Yes, but, but uh, uh, those who did, and there was uh, a communication link, this is uh, a better opportunity to intercept uh, the order. But if um, someone just watches uh, a preacher or Al Jazeera, and of course Qatar uh, and Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood, these are the three culprits. Um, it's very, very hard to know when this person will uh, get up and decide to do something extreme, especially if he's uh, cautious enough not to post it on social media. Colonel Kemp, uh, you spoke about the, the heinous terror attack uh, that occurred in Manchester in 2015 uh, and uh, various attacks that, of course, uh, happened surrounding that, but uh, the specific concert. Uh, following that, we had several uh, experts on the uh, various panels, including Dr. Carmon at some point, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this as well, uh, who spoke about the lack of uh, legal frameworks in order to provide authorities with uh, the, the correct tools in order to deal with uh, those uh, imminent threats. Uh, of course, after the terror attack in, in Vienna, uh, the, the British uh, authorities raised a level of alert to the highest level uh, of uh, a highly likely uh, attack. And uh, still, uh, thank God, nothing happened uh, until the, now. But still, there, there were different uh, points that were made uh, and uh, in different conversations that I also heard, uh, held behind the scenes uh, with various officials that there is still not enough of uh, legal backing in order to uh, ensure the security of the citizens to a level uh, that is deemed satisfactory by the intelligence community. Where is the disconnect between the two levels? I think we've got we've got three major issues that need to be resolved in Europe and in, in Britain, particularly, well, not just particularly in Britain, but across Europe and including in Britain. And the first one I would say is political will. And I think there is a lacking, a lack of political will to deal with this problem as it needs to be dealt with. And in some ways that's understandable because politicians are frightened in, in across all parties. They're frightened of making a strong stand against this problem and dealing with it in an effective way and the reason they're frightened is because they are worried about the reaction to maybe more repressive measures by Muslim communities in Britain, which are ever growing. And the same goes in other European countries. And that it's an understandable fear. They don't want to cause uh, violence and friction and make the problem worse. But at the same time, what it does is is present weakness. So I think the first thing that's needed is is political will. And, you know, the example I would cite of a country in Europe that actually could probably set an example to all of us is Italy. Italy has a much stronger, more robust policy in dealing with the terrorist threats and dealing with people who they deem to be terrorists or suspects than pretty much any other country does in Europe. And it tends to be more effective. You just have to look at the, the scale of terrorist threat in Italy compared to other countries. It's broadly much lower. Mm -hmm. um, the second of the three problems, I think, is... Um, is the one you really mentioned, which was the legal framework. Our laws are not adequate to deal with the problem we face today. And partly it's because of the constraints we face from the European human rights legislation that every country in Europe adopts, which in effect, in effect places the human rights of terrorists and terrorist suspects above the human rights of the ordinary citizen. And it really does curtail what the courts can actually do and how they can 
deal with the terrorists. And just as, as examples of this, there have been uh, identified and arrested terrorists working with the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, British citizens who went out there, fought with the Islamic State. They, some of them come back to the UK. And when they come back to the UK, by and large, they don't end up in jail because the system doesn't let them go to jail because it's extremely hard under our laws, it's extremely hard to convict in court somebody who's been involved in fighting in a country overseas where you know the, the evidence against them is obviously not up to the, in most cases, not up to the standard required. So we, what we've done in some cases is we've, we've made sure they were sent to the United States of America to deal with in a few cases um, because they were involved in terrorism against America and America wants them as well. So we know the American system is far more strong and able to deal with it. That's one area that does definitely need to be addressed. And and you, I think you mentioned it as well, um, preventing people from returning to the UK. It's very difficult thing to do to prevent somebody who's been involved in jihad overseas, if they're a British citizen, to prevent them from returning. If they're a dual national, as we have seen in some cases, they can be stripped of British citizenship and rely on their other citizenship. But that's not not very frequent and it's also potentially legally problematic given our current system and the third area i think that we need to resolve is one of resources i mentioned 43,000 that figure obviously every single one of them is not going to carry out a terrorist attack but the authorities need to be aware of every single one of them they can't clearly cannot monitor 43,000 people they have to prioritize them but they do need greater resources to do that and also that figure of 43,000 needs to be reduced and it can be reduced in three ways. One, by preventing people returning to the UK after carrying out acts of terrorism or being involved in jihad overseas. Two, by deporting anybody who can be deported who's suspected of terrorism or been involved in terrorism. And three, by considering internment without trial. And that's uh, the most controversial by far, but I think it's something that should be considered. It's got problems. It's not an easy thing to do. And I'm not talking about just rounding people up and throwing them in jail, but using uh, a different form of, of judicial system to, to, to impose detention on them when necessary. Because without those three measures, the figure just continues at 43,000 or more. And, and it continues to increase, of course, intelligence services. Indeed, it continues to uh, increase, of course. And uh, this is true for the UK, but this goes for the entire European uh, uh, continent and elsewhere. Also, Australia is dealing with this. Canada is dealing with this and the United States as well. Some countries more lenient towards uh, 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 those uh, Islamist terrorists and, and others less so. However, the, the problem is also... Uh, it, within those governments, there is a lot of, of uh, an increase because of the, the growing uh, Muslim communities in those countries of uh, political figures who are backed by those communities. And then they are even more concerned about uh, dealing with this topic because then they would be labeled out by their own communities as uh, traitors at some uh, uh, areas. Uh, this is also growing now, of course, in, in other areas. But Dr. Kamon, to what degree... Is this a challenge now to deal with on a parliamentary level uh, in, in Congress, for instance, or, or elsewhere, uh, particularly in Europe because of today's topic? But how do you see this being dealt with? Uh, I think that uh, what the Congress can't mention, the issue of resources. Uh, for an Israeli to see so many soldiers in the streets of London, 
in Germany, in France, uh, in Austria, instead of policemen, I think it's very uh, strange because this means that the uh, police does not have the resources and the intelligence services. We know, for instance, in France that the uh, police does not have translators from uh, eavesdropping on uh, potential terrorists in Arabic. Uh, so this needs to uh, a huge investment and not to use ad hoc uh, uh, troops, uh, military troops, in order to uh, keep the order. But I want to also to mention a very important factor in the last events in France. The fact that uh, uh, Muslim countries have uh, pressed France as President Macron uh, personally uh, because he was very strong in his position against the Islamists. And he delivered a very, very strong message to the, uh, to the French population, but also to the uh, Muslim population in France. And uh, Turkey is the main country which is trying to subvert, in a way, uh, the Muslim communities in uh, Europe. Uh, we know, for instance, in France, 150 of the imams uh, from the 300 imams which come from abroad, some of them or many of them should be expelled uh, according to the decision of President Macron, uh, as men uh, uh, has uh, threatened even uh, uh, President Macron and he's became uh, President of the land very, very uh, uh, impolitely with the French president, uh, while he himself is using jihadists uh, from Syria, uh, sending them to Libya, using them in Idlib in uh, northern Syria, and lately in Nagorno-Karabakh in the conflict between uh, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. The message that the Turkish president is sending uh, not only to uh, his own population and to the Middle East, but actually to the uh, Western world, a member of NATO which uses this kind of language to his colleagues, and he is subverting uh, by uh, sending uh, uh, radicalized elements in Europe, as the imams, for instance, they have charities, charities which on the one hand support the Muslim Brotherhood, but also Hamas in Israel. Uh, there was a recent uh, research in uh, uh, Great Britain. We know that one of the uh, ONGs, NGOs, which was uh, uh, outlawed in France during the last events, is a Turkish, uh, uh, Turkish very uh, radicalized uh, NGO, and uh, the Turkish reaction has been very, very uh, strong to the uh, I think, lawful decision of uh, France to close this uh, organization. So we have today, perhaps, uh, not only the problem of the uh, returning fighters, of the radicalized people inside Europe, but uh, two or three countries. By the way, Pakistan also was quite, uh, quite, uh, uh, I would say, extremist in their reaction to what happened in, in, uh, in France. And by the way, the spiritual leader of the Pakistani first uh, uh, terrorist which uh, attacked the Charlie Hebdo headquarters in uh, October, end of October, uh, has is the follower of so-called uh, moderate organization, Dalat Islam, which actually is considering uh, blasphemy as a mm -hmm. crime that should be punished either by the government of Pakistan or any citizen which is considered to be a hero if he kills a person which is accused of blasphemy. Well, so I, I think... We have a, a political strategic problem, not only internal problem. It's uh, a global problem, and we will revisit this topic. Unfortunately, we are out of time, uh, but this topic is uh, uh, going to come back to our, our panels, and, and we'd like to invite you back. But I'd like to thank Colonel Kemp, Dr. Carmon, and Mr. Owen for joining us for today's panel, and I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. 
For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.